Hi, I'm Tim Crosby and I'm joined by Sean Whip for episode two of Down the Track. Back here for the, the second instalment of uh, your new favourite podcast and um, we've had plenty happening over the last uh, fortnight or so, Tim. What are we, we going to look at today? Well, certainly has been a busy week. We've had uh, the AV relays, they were huge on last Saturday, Vic 5K uh, week. Can actually have a look at some shield results as well, Sean, which is great. David Armstrong has gone through and had a look at his point scores, so he's given us some really good highlight um, uh, performances out of the AV Shield. Also got the Wally Ch- Chisholm pole vault, and we're going to have a look at the Maltus multi-events event Fantastic. that took place a few weeks ago. So another big episode, so hopefully the listeners enjoy what they're in for for this week's edition of Down the Track. So lots of big events have been happening over the last few weeks. The AV Relays, one of the marquee events of the AV year, really club-focused event, uh, but lots of high performance too, Sean. Let's have a look at the 4x15s. We'll kick off with the women's. Interesting event there because we had a, a, a head-to-head there between Essendon and Glenn Huntley. Glenn Huntley got off to a really good start with Anna Saw. Was dicing there with Anna Sasapis for a while, but as Lauren Connell is going to tell us now, something went wrong with Anna in that last 300 metres, which opened up a big gap. So we'll just listen to Lauren's explanation of it all. So Anna, my first runner, was in a good position. She kept up with Anna Saw from Glenn Huntley, who's a really good... I know she's a very competitive runner, and I was really impressed with my Anna for keeping up with her, but she actually had an Achilles snap a little bit with 300 to go. So we dropped back a little bit, but she was just saying to me, I've just got to pass that baton over to Lauren. Yeah, so obviously Lauren then had a little bit of work to do to get the Essendon girls back into that race, but it did pan out quite well with them there. Lauren's a good story, actually. She was a very good junior, took a little bit of a break from athletics, has come back in, and we saw a very mature performance from her on Saturday. Yeah, and it's fantastic to see other team members there, Charlotte Wilson and Emily Guy, who've shown a, a, f- a fair bit of knack over the cross-country distances as well and some, some longer road distances. Also happy to come back down and, and I guess basically have a bit of fun in a, in a club environment and run something a little bit shorter and go home with some, uh, some hardware. Yeah, although the 4x1500, that's 6K of running, so uh, not necessarily the most exciting event to see on the track, and <laughs> it can be a little bit confusing because of those uh, the distance or the different changeover points that they have, which is not traditional for the 1500m uh, the starters. They find themselves out there and can be a little bit confused at times. Yeah, and I think that was a note that we all took watching both the men's and women's events. The times were uh, fractionally slower individually than we thought. And even aside from just the matter of maybe not having anyone to run with or any pacing, it can be a little bit of a confusing incident for people that are used to sitting in in a big pack and ticking off the laps. Yeah, we also talked to Lauren about what it feels like when you're setting off from a different start line and also having a little bit of work to do to make up the gap. It's a bit difficult once you get the bat and you have that adrenaline going, so you kind of go a bit bit hard initially and then you realise you've still got three laps to go and yeah it's a bit towards the end you need to grit your teeth a little bit but when the person ahead's just ahead it's not so hard to dig deep and kind of find that last bit of energy you need to pass it off. So what, what happened in the men's 4x15? Uh, the men's 4x15, I think we've got a, a, bit, of a, a bit of a follow-on from uh, the cross-country season. We had our, our regular cross-country clubs there, Box Hill, St Stephen's Harriers, uh, Diamond Valley, Frankston and Glen Huntley and even Melbourne Uni. They were the top six there. And I think Box Hill, uh, the, the first league from what I heard, turned out to be a little bit more, a little bit more tactical than expected. But it was interesting to see that both Box Hill, all of Box Hill, St Stephens and Diamond Valley all had one runner that was, say, fractionally slower than the rest of their team. So it was interesting talking to the boys over the weekend and finding out where they decided to put their runner that was a fraction slower. 
Um, I think at, at the end of the day, Box Hill sort of ran away with it as, as the continuity of the legs went on. Um, interestingly, a time of 16, 14, 58 for the win. Um, obviously not averaging under four minutes a leg, even though they had a team full of guys who've run substantially faster than that. Actually, my maths is horrific. Yeah, it's $1,500 a mile. So um, as, you've, as you've seen there, I've tripped myself up with the maths. Um, but nevertheless, I think it was interesting that we saw the likes of uh, some old all-schools champions in uh, Tim Gibney had a run out there for St. Stephen's Harriers and uh, was really happy to be back out there with the guys. And it was, it was interesting to see the mix of him with guys like Tom Thorpe, Lockie Aspinall and Ben Buckingham, who have, of course, all, all sort of regular sub-350 guys, but helping out a club mate there and, and getting some silverware. Yeah, I was impressed by Aspinall's run, actually. It was very measured, and he had a little bit of uh, work to get back into the race, but he did it really well, giving, handing the baton over to Buckingham to try and finish and chase down the Box Hill boys. Yeah, I think Aspie's a guy who... He, I think he might be 34 by now, um, but didn't look any of those 34 years on the track and uh, managed to, to reel in the lead, and then I think it left... Um, Poor, poor young Jack Itter, who is a very good junior in his own right, but I think he's only all of uh, all of 16 at the moment, uh, with Ben Buckingham hunting him down on the last leg, which I think was a bit of a last 60-metre boil over, and, and Jack was none too impressed. And uh, I think his esteemed uh, international teammate there, Jared Clifford, tried to show him the, uh, the differences in times and explain that Ben had run faster than his PB back-to-back twice in a row for a 3K. But uh, I think Jack's quote on the weekend was that he still would have been frustrated even if it was Mo Farah, so... That's the, that's the that's sort of attitude we like from our juniors. Yeah, exactly. Now, in the, the medleys and the 4x4s, any standout performances for you there? Uh, I think uh, in those 4x4s, it was interesting that we saw, uh, as, as you do sometimes with uh, random heat draws, that the first heat uh, was rather stacked um, in the sense that there was, I believe, Doncaster... Uh, this is in the men's? Yeah, in the men's 4x4, sorry. Um, Doncaster... Glenn Huntley, I think, and Old Melburnians might have been in the same one. I'll, I'll probably make an error or two there. But it was more the fact of that, the, the changes we've seen over the summer. So Glenn Huntley have had um, a few people turn up in the sense of Luke Major, Michael Sotsos um, and Will Johns. Uh, Will Johns and Sotsos previously having run for Old Melburnians but deciding to make the move over. Also with uh, Lawson Power, who used to run at Frankston but was injured for the event. Um, I think the 4x4 heats, they are a little bit cagey in the sense that teams are trying to run well, but are still just trying to lock in a spot for Zatapec. So whilst we had the fastest seed time, or the fastest finishing time there was Doncaster with 3.15.00, St. Kevin's were out there with a team of Connor Fry, uh, Peter Bowl, Tom Wilson and Steve Nucky, and they ran 3.15.60 relatively by themselves in the second heat. And I think we've said through the week there are some ripper stories coming out of that SCAC team in the sense that Connor Fry was a, a gentleman that had a speedboat accident last summer and had uh, chunks of his quad go missing and has sort of had to learn to walk before he could run again. Uh, and Tom Wilson, who was a Commonwealth Youth Games representative in 2014 and got a silver medal in the long jump, uh, ran 47.96 the other week at Shield and was happy to get himself through a, a pretty cruisy relay leg there unscathed. Yeah, I've seen photographic evidence of Connor Fry's little uh, injury there, and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> yeah, not a, not for anyone trying to eat anything. It's uh, a little graphic, but uh, I think Glenn Huntley will be interesting to see if they can get uh, power back into the team by Zatapak. If they can get him back in, maybe there's that extra half a second there or so. Um, 
But I think the interesting thing was old Melburnians as well. There were a few that floated back in there. Ross Hines, a young, quite talented junior who's run about 48.400. Uh, but also Sam Baird, who has made uh, sort of world junior teams in the past and had been travelling for about six months through just about every European and North African country you could poke a stick at. Uh, and as you said, he'd had about three weeks of training back in and managed to split 48 point, which when you've run 46-something back in the day is always uh, nice to see again. Yeah, it was an impressive performance by Ben and sporting the longer hair and now he's got the uh, the sleeve tat as well. So he's a, it's a new model of the Sam Baird compared to what we used to. <laughs> yeah, whilst uh, St Kevin's looked like they went for the bodysuit and the, the, this, this uh, very shiny sunnies, the, the other teams, Glen Huntley and OMAC, seem to lean more towards the, the split shorts and the long hair. Uh, and Doncaster, as always, I think, have shown that they've very much retained a team there. And they've got Daniel Minns, who's a promising junior from Queensland, um, who's moved down to Melbourne uh, to focus on his studies. And they're all uh, all working really well as a team. And, and Tristan Robinson, who moved over from Athletics down to Wadding, I think a few seasons ago now. Yeah, we will do a full preview of that before the Zatapec. Um, but one shout-out there in the 4 by 8 I think Keel and Burners have qualified for the Zatapec, yeah, which would be huge for the that 4x4, club. Yeah, 4x4, yep. Yeah. All right, four by one. Lots of anticipation around this one, especially the men's event. So what were your thoughts going into it? Who did you think had this one wrapped up? Well, I, th- I think, again, we're seeing the differences that club changes can make uh, throughout a throughout an off-season, whether that be social or coaching or, you know, one, one mate at a club managing to get a few people to sign on. But I think uh, heading into it, Athletics Essendon had what looked like it could have been a standout team um, with Junior Marbia, Melvin Monlay, Jack Hale and Jacob Despard both running, both the, the faster gents in that, those teams ran third and fourth. Uh, but they were, they were struck down a little by, by injury with Melvin Monlay pulling up uh, saw in the warm-up for the final and they had to sub in poor, poor Patrick Aquilano who I believe is only 13. Um, and I think we were talking about post-event, um, that it was refreshing to see that the team didn't... Uh, they, they all sort of treated him quite nicely and checked on him and reassured him that it wasn't his fault. <laughs> yeah, it was very mature, wasn't it? And uh, in the heats, you know, Essendon did look fantastic. Um, Nick, when calling the race, you know, didn't really latch on to Jack Hale, but Jack was absolutely flying through that bend, um, second to third, sorry, third to fourth change. And uh, and then before we knew it, Nick was suddenly thinking, well, God, where have Essendon come from? Because they came from nowhere. Yeah, and that's a team where even inside their own club, I think they're, they're, a, they're a club with jumps and sprints talent where when they can get everyone together and, and healthy on one day, they can have a, a hell of a four-by-one team. But as we saw in the final, uh, with, with those sort of difficulties they had down the back straight, uh, it ended up being Mornington Peninsula with the win. Uh, yes, and we did have a little chat to Matt Carter because Mornington Peninsula is a, it's an interesting story. This is a club that used to be <laughs> called the Peninsula Roadrunners, so uh, not necessarily known for their sprinters, and I dare say this is the first time in history that the uh, the team in Orange have actually won the 4 by one So we had a quick chat to Matt Carter prior to the event. It's looking like a really hot final, isn't it? It is, mate. It's going to be tough. We've got Essendon, who've got obviously Hale and Despard, and then Junior and um, uh, Melvin down the back straight as well. Uh, Glenn Huntley in there with a few of their good runners, and Doncaster always won, run well. So, and Geelong ran pretty good too. So I think they're going to be a top five if we can uh, all battle it out. Yeah, we're looking, I think it was about 0.6 separated about six or seven teams. So what's your tip? Who's going to take it out, do you reckon? Uh, Apart from Mornington. Yeah, so who's going to get second? <laughs> um, nah, Essendon are going to be tough to beat. They're going to be really tough to beat. But we've got a bit uh, left in our changes. Um, so I reckon Essendon and us, and um, ooh, I'm going to go Glenn Huntley. 
So obviously from that, Matt was looking at Essendon as being the team to beat, but obviously with the little issues they had with their team, uh, it, it threw, it sort of changed the dynamic, didn't it? Yeah, and Mornington are an, are an interesting sort of crossover team in the sense that they're they're very big into their pro running, so the Victorian Athletic League sees a fair bit of them. Uh, and that was an, an interesting note for all of our teams in that 4 by one We had two stall gift winners there in Jacob Despard and, and Matt Rizzo, and... And both seemed pretty happy to be in, in some club colours and having a run around. But Nathan Rialli making the move from Diamond Valley to Mornington Peninsula during the off-season actually puts them into a, a really competitive relay team with uh, Rialli, Rizzo, Carter and Nettlefold. It was still a very exciting finish though, wasn't it? Yeah, it, it definitely wasn't uh, It wasn't all over and done with until the final sort of three or four metres with Doncaster closing very hard there at the end. They've, of course, I guess got a mix there of, of young and old in the sense they've got... Kev Rasul, Conrad Kumaros and Liam Procaccino who are all best known for their 400 exploits uh, but also uh, young Kyle Nicolucci who's been a, a very good junior over the one and the two in the past. That's correct. Now what about in the women's action in the 4x1? Bear with me as I flick this page over. Uh, so if we look at our women's 4x100 metre results I believe we had uh, Old Melburnians were, were the winning team. Uh, and I think that when you couple together the likes of uh, Bassick, Hawks, Hubbard and Keenan, at least two out of those four are, are out and out 100 metre runners uh, with Hawks and Keenan often more 400 hurdles, but still having a very strong background of, of sprint training there. Uh, and Bassick having been a member of uh, previous World Junior teams and Hubbard being a member of relay programs o- over the years. When, when you've got that sort of class in a relay team, it's extremely difficult for other, for other teams to even get close. And I think the word class really subs up, sums up Kendra Hubbard because I was really impressed with the way she went about the, the relays that I saw her running on Saturday. She just looked quality. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, it's a, as we said, across the weekend, it's a club opportunity for everyone to get together and, and feel like they're contributing to something as a team, which whilst the distance runners are a little bit spoilt with cross-country and they get that feeling pretty regularly, uh, for the sprinters, you know, this is their, their sort of pinnacle team event for the, for the summer. All right. Now, we're talking about the team element of this. I had a quick chat to Hamish Beaumont from Melbourne University just to get a feel for what it means to Melbourne Uni to be part of the AV Relays. So what do the AV Relays mean to Melbourne University Athletic Club? Uh, it's one of our big season goals. We aim to fill every open relay team. We've filled nine of 11 this year. And we aim to get as many teams as possible to Zatapec. So it's, a bit, it's one of our big three pinnacles of the summer. So for Melbourne Uni, Sean, it is one of their marquee events, as Hamish calls it, and something they'd really do focus on. It'd be nice if a few more clubs did that. Yeah, I think that sometimes clubs can get a little bit fractured unintentionally into the summer and winter or, or field and track setups. But we saw across the weekend that there were clubs where someone may have been a, a jumper. Um, I'm not sure if we had any throwers down at the relays, but we've, we definitely see that crossover with the jumpers and, and maybe a thrower here and there who still feel they can get involved with the club and, and run in a relay. And that, that goes from the elite end of performance all the way through to our, our masters and juniors that were out there having a run. One of the exciting things for me was watching the young Maccabi girls in the 4x1. Uh, it's not a club you usually associate with the relays. We haven't seen a lot of them, but I caught up with one of the girls uh, just after the heats, knowing that they'd qualified to get through to the final, and they were pretty excited. Maccabi into a final at the AV relays. What do you think about that? It's great. Really exciting? Yeah. Now, are you girls training together? Yeah. 
like we train. Other than one person, she sometimes trains with us, but she's got another coach as well. So who's coaching you guys? Um, oh, sorry, girls. David. David Brock? Yeah. What do you think of him? He's a great coach. He's not bad, is he? He's really good. Yeah. So is this your first time at the AV Realos? Yeah, it's my first. Yeah. What do you think of it? It's really fun. Reckon you'll be back next year? Yes. Great. Good to see Maccabi Foodor final, isn't it? Yeah. It's a great. Good luck. Thank you. So yet again, Sean, you can just see the, the excitement levels that the Relays bring. It's that sense of bonding, it's a sense of team, and knowing that, yeah, you might not be from one of the big clubs, but uh, at an event like the AV Relays, you don't know what your fate might be. You might get through to a final, and who knows what happens from there. Yeah, and Mornington and Old Melburnians and St Stephens are smaller pocket examples of that, where they've got uh, an ability to be really good if they can get a, a team together for an event. Um, we saw that across the weekend where your standard powerhouse clubs maybe struggled a little bit against clubs who are happy to specialise in a particular distance or medley. Yeah, and Geelong Guild, yet again, is a great example of a program going on and a heavy focus on this event. And, gee, the amount of medals that the Geelong Guild teams <laughs> took home was, was quite astonishing. Yeah, and I think they've got that groundswell of sorts now with guys like Perdrasat and Morant who were either in contention for World Juniors or, or did go to World Juniors. And once you've got that, that little pocket of juniors who are all running very fast for their age and, and doing really well at a national junior level or even a national senior level. It really encourages those younger juniors and also older seniors to think, oh, I might get back down to the club or, or get back into training more regularly. Yeah, and a big shout-out to all the Geelong teams because Chilwell were there in, in quite good numbers and quite good quality. Uh, yeah. Deacon popped in for an event or two as well. And it was really good to see Cryo there. Uh, Cryo, probably you know more of uh, not, not one of the higher-profile Geelong clubs, but uh, Lou Marachi and the team were there and they yeah, looked good. Yeah, and, and even in the case where you might have someone like Amir Gross from Deakin who you know, is, is obviously working through the early stages of her season but was even happy to jump in for a 4x4 and just kept the, kept the runners on but was happy to do, do her bit for the team, which was awesome to see. Yeah, that's excellent. Now, St Kevin's were there. High expectations of that 4x8, but um, <laughs> in a way it turned out to be in the men's event a 4x3. Do you want to explain that one, Sean? Yeah, I think there were there were some maybe some subtle disagreements on on team arrangement, and and that meant that uh, their their A team um, was maybe maybe a little bit altered. So in, in past years they've gone for basically the fastest time they can put together, um, but their A team of Mathis, Nucky, uh, Weeks, and Bol um, were sort of under coaching instructions. Bar, bar Mr. Weeks, who is a has been a St Kevin's cross country coach for many years, but is a is a humble 204 runner. Found himself in the A-team and um, well, he managed to go home with a gold medal but the other gentleman basically ran 60 second pace till 300 metres were remaining and proceeded to very calmly blow the doors off anyone who was within touching distance. It certainly was interesting to see and once we, were, we knew what the strategy was it was interesting to call uh, just seeing these guys exploding 300 metres out and uh, getting sub 40 second performances. Yeah and, that, and that's awesome to see. There was, you could hear bits of chatter throughout the crowd. Matt, you know, Mathis is a, a seven time uh, New Zealand national champ for the 800 metres and was fifth at the Commonwealth Games and then of course you've got Peter Bowl coming back from an enormous European season breaking the 145 barrier and, and there, it, it, as, you know, as a distance fan myself it, it is cool to see kids picking up on who's there and you know someone who's been to the Olympics and World Championships and, and seeing them at a club level and, and seeing that you know, that's sort of the pathway they can at least aspire to follow. 
Yeah, and in the women's event, the 4x8, the Essendon girls went the double there. They did the 4x15 and 4x8. So brought Erin Rayner in for this one. Uh, and it was just really good to see those girls bonding because Essendon, not necessarily a team that during the XCR that we see really bonding well, but over this relay uh, day, they certainly were a very tight unit. Probably augurs well for their next XCR campaign, which I think they go up a division this year. So we might see bigger and better things from the Essendon girls there. Now with the St Kevin's program though, we'll just get back onto that one. I, I did have a uh, quick chat to Pete McGarry because St Kevin's were there in numbers but the numbers were more particular in the junior events. We saw a whole pile of the under 14 boys out there and I think one of the events they, they had nearly half the field which is awesome to see. So Pete just explained a little bit about what the relays mean to the St Kevin's club. It's a great chance for our whole club to come together from our youngest and most inexperienced to our most experienced and most credentialed um, Olympians. Uh, it's a great day for club athletics uh, and a great day to have some fun with your friends. Yeah, we're seeing good team numbers, so obviously a little bit more work's gone into those junior ranks, hasn't it? It has. Uh, with our facility in Taronga, uh, it's been a great chance for us to, to grow our junior ranks, uh, get some good coaches on board. And as we know, this sport is coach-led and um, we're really proud of our coaches uh, with what they do with our kids and uh, the environment that they create for them, which uh, we think is uh, a really fun one. So as I said, Sean, big day there, the AV Relays. Uh, gee, the volunteers and the AV officials had a big day out there. It was great to see, and yet again, the, the whole tribe of AV people pulled together. Atmosphere there, I thought it was one of the best atmospheres I've ever had for a relay event. Being at the Box Hill track, I think, helps. Yeah, I think the difficulty with Lakeside is even if you got 2,000 people down there, you still wouldn't quite fill the stadium. And because of the distance between the seating and the track, it, it's maybe exaggerated a little. Whereas with Box Hill, you're really close to the track. Clubs have areas to set up their, their sort of marquee setups. And, and it's fantastic because it does feel like that club situation that ourselves and a lot of junior and senior athletes were used to being brought up into. Yeah, in the occasions I was out of commentary and down onto the track just the feeling around that start finish line was really palpable, you know, the excitement you know, people cheering on their teammates and yeah, that's what athletics is all about isn't it? Yeah, it's awesome seeing juniors and seniors blend together and those different coaching groups all coming together for a common goal now let's move on to the Victorian 5,000 metre championship. It was a big night. Eight races of a Victorian 5K. Let's have a look at that women's A race because we, well, let's not discriminate, but I think it was the race of the night. <laughs> yeah, I think um, it was awesome having that interstate flavour, uh, providing uh, probably, probably our closest finish of the night. Um, and Caitlin Adams and Tara Palm, who both made the trip over from South Australia. Well, uh, three one hundredths is very close. Yeah, I think, um, I think, especially in the five k, it's it's rare to see something like that. And even across the final hundred, there were multiple moments there where I don't think we could pick who who was going to come out on top there. Yeah, Lisa Stratton caught up with Caitlin Adams, who was the winner of the event uh, just before the event. So let's uh, have a listen to what Caitlin was saying. Um, the winter was really fun, especially like the Australian Cross Country Championships, saw a bit of success there. So I'm really keen though to get into the track season and there's been a few of us South Aussies come over for this event. So it should be a good one tonight and lead into a few more races in SA in the next few weeks. So good to see that the South Australians are really targeting a few of the events over here in Victoria, Sean, and uh, this 5K champs certainly had quite a few of them in it. Yeah, I know uh, both across the men's and women's, they've seen it as an event where 
if, if there's an opportunity to have really deep competition in, in Melbourne, it's not the, the lengthiest of trips for them. So it's, it's fantastic to see groups communicating with groups and trying to set up good fields. Yeah, well, just reliving that finish, though, uh, Adams and also Tara Palm, the other South Australian, in a good bunch for most of the way with Alex Patterson, the lead Victorian. Alex went on to win the gold medal from the Victorian Championship. But a couple of laps out, Alex was dropped and it was a two-horse race between these two Adams, or sorry, Palm did a lot of the work early. Adams started to take over in the latter stages. And on that last lap, there was a change of lead. And Adams looked like she had it done, but that last straight, Tara Palm just threw it right down, didn't she? Yeah, I think um, it's probably a skill set that 5K runners uh, laps to forget about from time to time. But it was was definitely the the old school uh, junior sprint skills were, were... called upon there um, and it was very exciting. Yeah, well, the other thing that was going on at the time, Caitlin thought she had it. She thought she'd dropped Tara, but with the going through the traffic and going through path or lapped runners, she wasn't aware of what was going on behind her. And uh, in the final 50 metres, Tara's surge was, was nothing short of sensational and it really required a dip at the line by Caitlin to take the win. Yeah, uh, again, things we're, we're not used to seeing in the, the world of 12 and a half lap racing, but um, for the fans that were there to watch the the A and sort of B races of, of the evening, it was, it was well worth the wait. So post-race, Lisa caught up with both Caitlin and Tara and had a quick chat. Yeah, absolutely. It's so good to have, like, the number of distance runners we have rising through the ranks in South Australia at the moment. I think we're really, like, um, stamping our mark in Australia, especially after the National Cross Country Championships. So, yeah, it was great to have Tara out there. So, yeah, well done. Everyone. And what was the weather like, the conditions like out there? It was a bit windy? It was, it, was, it was tough. It was a little bit windy, a little bit colder than what we're used to, but it's always good when you come to Victoria, especially Melbourne, for a race. So it's worth the trip over, and thank you. Just wrapping up that women's race, and as we said, Alex Patterson from Olds Varian's got the win and gold medal uh, for the Victorian Championship. Second place, one of our up-and-comers, Katie Gamble. Yeah, uh, from my understanding, Katie's been up and down the last few years with a few, few injury niggles, but it's awesome to see an athlete when they put everything together again and obviously had a really good winter and uh, popping in for, for second there with 16.27, that's a, that's a quality run. Yeah, I think it was a 50-something second PB, according to her coach, Peter Swallow. So very impressive there. Henny Lawrence came in for that third spot there. So good run by Henny. Uh, And, you know, yet again, some great depth there in this event for the women. Moving on to the men, and that was yet again a fairly interesting race, wasn't it? Yeah, I think if I was Ollie Chignall and I'd made the flight over from New Zealand, I wouldn't have been that excited when I saw around 74 to 75 seconds for the first lap of uh, what was supposed to be a sub-14-minute race. Yeah, it was an unusual race, and uh, we'll just hear from the eventual winner, Harry Summers, as to why that panned out. Yeah, I was going to go for about 13.40, uh, 5K. Um, There's a, a guy... Uh, that flew up from Hobart, Dijon Gabrielesi, and um, something happened, like I think um, a technical error or something, and then so he he, he couldn't he couldn't run. So I thought I'd just sit back and and make a move the last five laps. Yeah. So Sean, a bit of controversy there. A pacemaker who wasn't able to <laughs> race. I think our uh, our esteemed friend, uh, good good friend of the show, uh, Dijon Gabrielesi, is a young man from Tassie. And uh, he does struggle a little bit administratively and I believe the idea was that he was going to help pace the race and he, he had entered correctly, but he forgot the crucial step of checking in. So when he arrived on the start line, um, he was unable to, to participate. So a good reminder to athletes, both young and old, that administrative processes must be followed and checking in is one of those basic things that all of us should do. <laughs> 
Yeah. Uh, so it really changed the dynamic of the race. So, so as Harry said in the interview, it, it just sort of dawdled around for a while and then, what, about five, K, five laps out, he just put the foot down and put in a couple of 240Ks. Yeah, so Harry again opting for the, the flats as opposed to the spikes, making that return down from the marathon distance and, and not wanting to risk calves too much. Um, he went, I believe he went 240 and 241 for the last two one-kilometre splits. Uh, but I think it was that 62-second lap with about five laps to go that really split that field up and, and got what was a distinctive second pack into gear uh, and left Harry pretty much all out on his own. Yeah, um, it was good to see the South Australians once again here with uh, Max Stevens coming in second place. Yeah, there was a pack there of Stevens, uh, Cody Shanahan, uh, Adrian Potter, another another gentleman from South Australia, uh, Chignall Clark um, and Daniel Canala, who's a, a gentleman from South Australia. Uh, what, had, what had happened there, I think, was they probably had a few 65, 66 second laps to, to get them wriggling on to a little bit of a better time. Um, but coming into that final lap, I think Clark made a bit of a bit of a bid, bid for glory with 400 to go. And it was as if the second that he made a move to go, Stevens uh, put probably two and a half seconds into him in 200 metres, so obviously had a bit in the tank. Yeah, but it's really showing the coming of age of Cody Shanahan too, isn't it? You know, he's got silver there in the Victorian champs and, you know, he's come, he's not long out of the junior ranks and we're already seeing some very mature performances from Cody. Yeah, as a, as a previous Zatapak under 23k winner, um, he's graduated very comfortably to the 5k distance and for a guy that probably only runs sort of 80, 90k's a week and fits that in around uh, a, a tradie job, he, um, you know, He's balancing both ends of life pretty well. Yeah, and just looking at the South Australian names there too, we saw South Australia stitch us up in Mullaney in the men's uh, senior cross country. <laughs> I reckon we might have to get used to this a little bit, Sean. Yeah, I think um, I'm, I'm not aware if all of the gentlemen there are from the, the Adam Diddick group. I think a large oh. portion of them might be, but not all. But I think you know they, they made it pretty clear at national cross country that I'm not sure if they'd ever won the team gold yeah. medal um, and were sort of incredibly proud of that, which is a huge achievement for what's sometimes considered a smaller state for distance running. And I think that just shows when there's clear lines of communication between coaches and athletes, you can achieve really cool things both in a, a team cross-country sense and, and getting yourself into good races around the around the country. We'll throw Riley and Jacob Cox into that mix and you've got a very strong and deep uh, list of South Australians, which is huge. So, you know, for so long, Victoria have been looking across the other border to New South Wales or the main opposition, but I think um, South Australia now have really stamped themselves. Yeah, I think that'll be a, a topic of discussion for, for the remainder of the season and, and seeing how those guys that have made themselves sort of notable on the cross-country scene will improve over the track season. Once again, the B races were full of excitement too. With, uh, I think for me, two of the highlights of the night, two of our younger runners really taking the bull by the horns in both of those races and, and getting the wins. Yeah, good to see uh, Callan Goldsmith, who um, if, if you do much running down the sort of Frankston Mornington way you, you see a fair bit of um, he's a, a Dave Schwallow athlete uh, Pete Schwallow Pete Schwallow Pete Schwallow my mistake uh, has been running down there for a while but again you know, has had those standard sort of junior problems of a niggle here and there upsetting his season but awesome to see him back on the track in under 15 minutes for the win but pushed all the way too by Tom Crouch I'm not sure if Callum knew who was behind him but Tom <laughs> Crouch from St Stephens was there and he wasn't going anywhere yeah very determined and, and obviously a, a mixed bag at the top of that B heat with uh, Tom Crouch and even Steve Deneen there breaking breaking 15 minutes in third um, and a former uh, Victorian cross country medalist in Harry Smithers in fourth having a run around as well. Yeah, look, great depth there in that B race. The women's race, you know, Victoria Scott Sonis once again, just a mature performance from a young girl. Yeah, and I think the 5K distance is one where 
yeah, it can take a little while to get used to or, or get right, but it's awesome to see an athlete in a B race have a really big breakthrough like that. Yeah, not far behind her, though, was Olivia Weston. So, well, Scott Sonis' time was 17.49, which would have placed her fairly well, actually, in the, in the Victorian Championship. So I think we know mm. where she'll be heading next year. Uh, Sarah Lewis from my old club, South Coast. Uh, that was a big run, 18.21 for Sarah, third place there in the B race. Just some of the others looking through the results. One that really took my eye, a young guy, brand new I think. His name's uh, Bashir Abdinor, runs for Essendon. He was in the slowest of the heats, but ran 17.0. That was pretty impressive. Yeah, not bad going if you're in one of the heats a little bit further back and you, you take the race by the horns, as you've mentioned, and uh, make your own running. Yeah, and then looking at one of the other races there too, you've got a couple of the youngsters, uh, Harry Sharp and Ben Bysher. They're running 15-23 and 15-27, and that was in the C race. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good nod to the depth of the Victorian fields. But, yeah, Harry's a, a pretty talented little steeplechaser and, and mixes up in the, the 15 and the 3. And cool to see him, you know, sort of just figuring out what that transition to 5 might feel like. And, and Ben, a guy that's had a few niggles as well, but good to see him back on the track. So all in all, a very good night at Lakeside for the Vic 5K Championships. Weather was not fantastic, but as we've seen, the performances were there, so it wasn't too, too bad out there. Yeah, I think if you get that field together, um, you know, we didn't have any pouring rain or, or 100k an hour winds. We, we sort of had the, the luck of the, of the good pass of the evening, but yeah, you put a good field together and anything can happen. We've also had a high-velocity meet, the number one out of Box Hill. Number's not super impressive, but it's good to see high-velocity high club back on the AV agenda. Yeah, I think um, some some athletes and coaches might have briefly forgotten when it was first proposed as to it being a few days before state relays, and unfortunately the weather was a, a, little, a little grim on the Thursday evening, but I think as the community's noted that you know, there was, there was support there for the first one and, and a lot of people discussing their desire to get in on the second meet. Yeah, let's have a look at some of those results. In the women's 100, Celeste Mucci, now heptathlete, 11.98. So not too far off her PB of 11.85. So a good run from Celeste. Also Mietta Russell, 12.33. Maybe a little bit disappointed with that. though. Uh, wind was 1.7. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad day for it. They obviously had good tailwinds. Yeah, yeah, I, I guess there's always a little bit that goes into each sprinter's week and, and, and we're sort of not to know how that fits in with training and those things. But I think they're, they're both athletes that are, are you know, Celeste clearly at a, at a Commonwealth Games level and Mieta being a multiple-time national champion in her age group. It's, it's awesome to see that level of athlete getting down to uh, this new concept. In the 200, Mieta took that one out in 25.5. And we had Wednesday Shield from Box Hill, 25.86. So not a bad run there. Women's 400 hurdles, PB there for Nicole Reynolds from Doncaster, 63.86. So new best time for her. Steph Larkin, 65.27 in second. Yeah, I know Nicole uh, from a a fair few junior trips there and is a a training partner of Letitia Willis, who's a very talented hurdler as well. So interesting to see Nicole moving up to the, the four sticks. Long jump, Chloe Grenard, 5.92. That was a big PB. Sorry, 5.72. Her PB is 5.92. So not too far off for early season. Yeah, I I think we've got to take that into account as well, that sprinters' seasons are usually pretty pretty specialised and they might take a little bit longer in the season to get back down to those PBs. Good field of eight, though, in that women's long jump, so good support there for the women's long. Yeah. Men's 100, Jacob Despard. 10.60, 10.60, I believe that's a PB. Yeah, that was a PB for him. And I think it's exciting to see someone who, you know, will, will definitely be knocking on the door of a, a national final there and, and, you know, has had 
a great deal of success in the shorter sprints since being a 4x4 World Junior Team member way back in uh, Oregon in the US. Um, but I think it's just laying it down there that you, know, you, know, you need to learn to run in a variety of conditions. And if it's raining or it's windy at a national final and you've run in that a few times in Victoria, you're probably better, better off for that. Correct. So 0.5 a wind on that one. Michael Hansford's second there in 10.88. Men's 200. Cooper Smith from Glen Huntley. Uh, we saw some good stuff from him at the Relays too. 22.81 to win that. 1.7 wind. Uh, second was uh, Jordan Carfu from Casey Cardinia in 22.99. So what do you think of those performances, Sean? <laughs> I'll be honest. The uh, world of 200 metre running is not one I'm hugely familiar with. Um, obviously, the sort of 22 second times show that um, yeah, these might not be our, our top, top, top 200 guys, but I think yeah, it's deserving that if you're willing to get down to these events and, and you want to have a run, um, it's awesome to see those guys getting out and having what was a, a relatively close field in terms of depth. But once again, the four hurdles was quite a good event with Matthew Harcourt recording a 53.98, uh, which isn't too far off his PB 53.48, so that was a good run. Yeah, I think Matthew, uh, he's had some sort of flirtations with the multi-event career there and also the four hurdles career. So good to see him starting the season off well. And very interestingly, uh, Dylan Burrows, who has been an all-schools uh, medalist in the past in the four hurdles, but also ran about 154 for the 800 uh, on uh, on Saturday. So and I think you ran a 4 by 15 as well. Yeah, I know Bron Loisieu down at uh, Frankston does seem to like pushing him out to 1,500 times, which Dylan's slightly afraid of, but... Uh, I don't know, we could have a, a four hurdles, 800, double there. Yeah, well, 54.52, that's a PB for, for Dylan. And <laughs> he's certainly one guy who's getting value out of his AV membership at the moment. We're seeing him everywhere, which is which is great. And, and hopefully he can hold on for the full length of the season and be producing and hopefully at a new level when he hits the, uh, the championship season. Yeah, he's run a PB there in the four hurdles and I think he would have been very close to, if not having split a PB in the four by eight and did it very unconventionally going with that big 300 last kick. Now, Nicholas Hum took out the long jump, 6.72, not fantastic. He's got a PB of 7.09. Second position there was Bay Agostino, so one of our juniors. Yeah, so obviously that's some good support there from John Boas's, uh jumps group. They're, they're both uh, training partners there. So, yeah, aw- awesome to see one of our, our Paralympians getting down to, to compete. And once again, our pole vaulters were Busy, they never seem to stop competing, do they? So they had the Wally Chisholm Memorial, which is a great event held down at the Mentone track. And it's quite it's been going for quite a few years now, the, the Wally Chisholm, uh, in honour of the very famous Wally Chisholm, great uh, pole vaulter and coach down at Mentone for a long, long time. So some good performances, though. Olivia Gross, 380, equals her PB. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome for Olivia. I know it's still really early in the season for her, but I think with uh, especially those younger pole vaulters, it's still it's still a very difficult event to master technically. So the more opportunities they've got to jump, uh, the better they they tend to go. Well, given that, yeah, and we've seen her through the all schools and then at uh, the rare air comp and now this one, and she mm. just seems to be getting into a groove a little bit now, Olivia. Four metres would have to be a realistic target for this year, wouldn't it? Yeah, and, and I think uh, with, uh, I guess, Cassie Bradshaw there in, in second with 370, she's she's got some, you know, I'm not sure if they train together. They're both from down Geelong way. I think they might train from time to time together. But you, you've basically got that, that ground soil we've spoken about where if you get enough people knocking around that four metre mark or the 380s to 390s, you know, everyone pushes each other in a junior comp and you never know what can happen on a, on a good day at Nationals. Well, 370 for Bradshaw, that's pretty big. Would that be a PB, you think? 
Look, I'd, I'd have to say it's a pretty substantial PB. I've, I've, I think I've seen her more often in some 800s and she even made the state cross-country team this yeah. year. So the fact that she's definitely got a, a number of skills there is awesome to see. Yeah, well, looking at that, I think, you know, pole vault could be something that she's really got to start to focus on because you can't, at her age, you can't be multidisciplinary for too, too long, I wouldn't believe. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how old Cassidy is off the top, mate. I think she might still be an under-16 or, or maybe into the under-17s. So... Yeah, I guess there does come a time where maybe you prioritise the technical event, but I think her dad was was a multi-eventer of some some serious national. But not note. a cross-country runner. <laughs> no, no, I I was a bit surprised one night at training seeing her down with uh, Bruce Griffin's group having a run around, but I don't know. I guess she enjoys the two-lap yeah. distance too. <laughs> well, good good honour, and that's it, it, a great performance. So Tamara Mancuso, she got the third place, and there was some cash up on the line for this one too. So good to see the pole vaulters being rewarded for their yeah. efforts. So free sixty for Mancuso from the Melbourne University. So also some great performances from the men in that pole vault at the Wally Chisholm. Blake Lucas, good to see that name back on top. Four eighty-five. Joel Pocklington, four eighty, and also Lachlan Burns, four eighty. Yeah, strong results at the top there and, and good to see some seasoned pole vaulters back uh, back in action. Yeah, look, hopefully for Blake and also Joel, this means that they're going to be moving forward through the season and we could see them you know, reaching you know, fairly good heights by the time we hit the championships. Yeah, obviously, you know, very tech-heavy tech event. Can take a little while to put everything together in the season, but good signs early. Yeah, also Jonathan Burns there from Chilwell. Maybe a younger brother of Lachlan. He's got a 420, so that's not a bad... Bad performance. Yeah, that uh, the Geelong pole vault resurgence continues. Correct. Let's have a look at some of the Shield highlights. And now, big thanks here to David Armstrong, who is the guru of all things Shield results. And he's given <laughs> us some standouts. And one I want to lead with here is we've had a Victorian Masters record jump <laughs> at AV Shield. Uh, 6 metres 12, Luke Di Biazzi from Diamond Valley. He's an M55. So 6'12". Yeah. That is not too bad, is it? Doing well. I'd, I'd say, look, I'm, I'm not familiar with the ageing process myself, but I could imagine the, the ability to go six metres or more into a long jump pit might wane a little as you get older, but that's, uh, that's unreal. Well, I am familiar with the ageing process, <laughs> and I know that at the age of 55, the, uh, the limbs aren't as necessarily as supple as they used to, so that's not a bad leap to go 6'12 into the long jump pit. Uh, so brilliant. we saw Luke DiBiase actually in the relays, and he looked very impressive, actually. Might be a newcomer. What we often find with the Masters is those setting records like that aren't necessarily, haven't been performing for the last 40 years. They can come in a bit later in life and mm. they might have a greater lifespan in the Masters. But great jumping there by Luke and yeah, good on David for highlighting that one to us. Uh, para-athlete Todd Hodgetts, he threw a 7.26 shot, 14.04, so not a bad throw there from, from Todd. Yeah, he's, he's uh, I believe he's um, made a number of uh, national para teams in the past and um, I think uh, it was a Paralympian too so cool to see him getting down to Shield. We also had a couple of really good walks um, in this is Shield round five uh, and remarkably two almost identical times by two junior walkers but at different venues. So <laughs> Philip Hughes from Sandringham got a 24.38.6 at Williamstown and then uh, in Ballarat Alana Piat got a 24.38.48. Oh. <laughs> so good walking there from both Alana and also Philippa. Now, Alana's an under-16, mm. and that is an extremely good result. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I'm familiar with the Pitt family a little bit, and I think it might be Cassie, her older sister, is, is quite good as well. But, yeah, I, I think walks is one of those things where 
if, if you sort of start to have those really, really strong results at, at quite a young age, it, it's something that can sustain you a fair bit. And, and yeah, Philippa was someone who um, was part of the under-19 development squad with AA. Yeah, look, uh, and also I think with the P it's too, we're continuing that very strong Ballarat YCW walking tradition, you know, yeah, other I talents. Think, um, I think the talents are their cousins, so plenty of, plenty of linkages up there. Yeah, no, good to see. Now, round six... Jack Hale stepped out in action at Meadow Glen, but the headwinds were absolutely <laughs> ripping down yeah. that straight. So they got as high as minus 6.9. Um, Jack got out and did uh, a 21.64 into a minus 4 metre headwind. So that's pretty impressive. I'd liken it to something like running into a brick wall, but um, yeah, we'd have to get some, some sprint screws on here to let us know what each metre of a headwind is worth. Um, but yeah, that's... look. Commendable run given the uh, the conditions. I think lesser sprinters might have just passed on the day. Now I know Jack's probably going to head to Tassie and do a lot of the uh, the gift type things over that Christmas New Year period. But gee, it's good to see him running in the Essendon Colours, isn't it? Yeah, I believe he's even got a, a 400 scheduled for one of the, the gift races down in Tassie. But yeah, it looks like he's he's settled in quite nicely at Essendon, and um, he's definitely a, a draw card for those other boys looking for a relay. Yeah, and as we mentioned before. He's doing the team stuff as well. So, you know, with the young guy and yeah, the... Yeah, getting out shield. Yeah, that's right. And, and it, it's good to see that someone of that ability, you know, really embracing the Victorian club culture. Yeah, and I think it's a, it can be at times a, a much repeated adage, but training, uh, training can only be so good to some extent and sometimes racing is the, the best form of training. Correct. Just talked to Neville Silito about that. <laughs> All right, Henry Smith from Sandringham. Good to see Henry back. He got a 7.68 uh, in the long jump with a 3.7. So that was a nice little assisting breeze. But 7.68, nice opening jump there from Henry. Yeah, I think, um, again, a long jumper that struggled a little bit a little bit with injury, but awesome to see him back in the pit. And Celeste Mucci, our heptathlete, 100-metre hurdles. She's done a 13.81. So that was a nice point scorer for her team, Williamstown. Yeah, obviously very busy across uh, both high velocity and, uh, and shield. Yeah, and yet again, though, we, we're seeing you know, Darren's approach to Celeste that she does compete relatively often. Yeah, if you've got all those events that you've got to hone your craft at, uh, it's understandable that you might need to get out and compete a little bit. Yeah, so yeah, and hopefully we'll see her at a bit at Miles Club in the 800s as well because they have done that before. Now, another big standout here and that's been highlighted to us, Alicia Kensole from um, Diamond Valley, 370 in the pole vault, uh, coached by Bill Georgiantis at uh, Greensboro. Hmm. Uh, so not from one of the, the normal stables there of the pole vaulters, but apparently... Now, pole vaulting guru Mark Stewart's put a little bit of a tick next to her name and really sees that this one here, Alicia Kenshole, is going to be a big talent. Yeah, I think uh, I did see her name pop up on the all-school sheet for Cairns uh, and was a new one that I wasn't entirely familiar with, but I can't recall whether Mark said it or not, but I think Mark might have suggested she has come from a, a gymnastics background. So, you know, Mark is a guy that does love a, an ex-gymnast stumbling into the pole vault world because uh, all those skills tend to transfer. Now, in the teams at Shield, it looks like Nana Wadding are getting their act together. They're leading both the men and the women. So Nana Wadding, Mentone, and Huntley, the top three in the men, and Nana Wadding, Essendon, and Melbourne Uni in the women. So that's our wrap on Shield, and we'll try and continue to do that throughout the, uh, the summer season. Just try and highlight those great performances that may not necessarily be uh, you know, picked up otherwise. So, Sean, during the, the week, Athletics Australia have released their qualification criteria and standards for the World University Games, which are going to take place in Naples next year. Yeah, I, I think uh, of, of all the 
the sort of roulette that World Uni Games can be in terms of venues. Naples is uh, probably as good as you could have hoped for. Yeah, look, it was Taiwan last time, and I think it was in a bit of a heat wave over there. Uh, before that, it was in, I think it was another Asian city. It might have been Korea. So yeah. they're going back to Europe again. Yeah, Guangzhou, I think, in Korea. And then... Yeah. Even before that, it might have been Russia, I think. So I think it might have been, actually. In yeah. Kazan. So Kazan. Yeah, it's been a yeah. bit all over the shop. Yeah. So good to get it back to you know, mainstream sort of a, uh, Italian city and uh, mm. into Naples. And I know a lot of the 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 you know the uni students who are at that level are really eyeing this one off. I think they're quite excited. Yeah, and I think we've seen here, you know, it's, it's clear as day in the selection policy that, that it's a policy that's aligned with um, Sport Australia's high-performance strategy and Athletics Australia's strategic plan, uh, and that is, you know, the standards are difficult, but the team is going to achieve medals effectively. That is the main goal by those top eights as supporting athletes um, and, you know, push these kids through to uh, Olympic or World Championship berths. That's right. This is certainly a high-performance meet. So the standards reflect that, apart from maybe a few anomalies. And we, we'll talk a little bit about, the say, the half marathon because, yeah, there might be some eyes popping out saying, gee, I can run that. Mm. But it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be selected even if you get the qualification standard because I know a few got it for Taiwan and mm. no one was selected. Yeah, as, as I understand it, in the 10,000 metres and the half marathon, um, they are events that rely heavily on selector discretion. So whilst that qualifier in the men's of 67.48 and in the women's of 77.25, I, I guess they're more guidelines. Um, whilst we have noted previous championships have been in quite hot weather, so might have changed the, the statistical line for where the qualifiers set. Well, that's um, right. If they're looking at what's happened to previous uh, instances yeah. of these games you, you can't compare the sprints to the distance because mm. they are summer games and that could lead to this sort of potential softening of the performance if mm. they're based on say top eight yeah. uh, but the reality is that for the men you'd expect that you've got to be a 63 or 64 and similar for the women maybe 72 73 to be a real chance of selection yeah whilst it is a development event i think if you can if you compound the the heat of some of those previous events with with running closer to maybe a, a 65 um, yeah, it, it's an equation you've got to take into into your thought process when you're picking your events. But yeah, I think we've got a strong crop of half marathoners in that sort of university age group, so it, it would be good to see a few go. And also in the 10k, and I think we might see a few stepping out of the Zatapec trying to get a qualifier that puts them in good stead for uh, the the event in Naples. Now, also there's been a change to the ages uh, that can qualify for this event. Yeah, I, I believe historically you could be as old as, as 28. There, there was really a way you could you could string your eligibility out in terms of how many part-time subjects you needed to take. And there were there were obviously some athletes that you know had some later in life births on the World Uni Games team. But I think as you've noted earlier, the the age has come down to you've got to be 25 at uni or 26 if you finished the previous semester. Um, and I think that really really cements it as that in-between event between, say, a, a World Junior Championship and a, and a senior team. But it's certainly high-performance meet, isn't it, Sean? This is not for people who are just sitting around on the fringes. Yeah, I, I know off the top of my head, I think the World Junior qualifier for the men in the 100 was 10.55, and, and you see there it's down at 10.36. So, you know, there are times like 20.97 for the 200 and, and 147.6 in the 8, and you know, the women's 400 sits at 52.9 and the women's 8 sits at 202.4. So you've got times in here that if you're in that ballpark, one, there's probably not a great deal of you in Australia. It's a, it's a pretty select group. Um, so if you're in that group and you're at university, you're, if, if you're running those times at that meet, you're, you'll be looking to find yourself in a final and maybe sneak a medal. Well, that's the intention, isn't it, from AA? They're, not, they're going to send people over who are realistic chances, and, and that's quite exciting for those who get selected, knowing that all they have to do is get there and perform to standard, and they should be a very good chance of getting into finals at least. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I know with both our 800 meter runners that went to the last edition of the event, um, Steve Nucky and Georgia Griffith were, were both in the final, and and Georgia was in a bit of a an unusual disqualified then reinstated setup with a with a Cuban athlete, but you know by all accounts I think was ended up top four there, and and Steve was a guy that PB'd in the heat, the semi, and the final, so. You know, they, these are sort of that building ground for, you know, you need to be able to perform at a set time, at a set championship and, and combine tactics and performance well. Correct. So, yeah, a lot of excitement about this and, you know, we'll obviously be following this as people start to get the qualifiers, you know, through that process to get to Naples in 2019. So in conjunction with the Zatapec this year on the 13th and 14th of December, Athletics Australia have got a new and exciting initiative, which is an endurance coaching conference. So obviously it's going to be held at the Lakeside venue and it's going to be over those days that span, so it's the Zatapec Day on the 13th and also through to the Friday the 14th. It's going to be hosted by Australian distance team coach Adam Diddick and we'll see many of Australia's best endurance coaches present. Now the speakers list, Sean, it looks pretty good. So you've got people like Louise Burke and everyone knows Louise Burke in Australia. She is one of the chief nutritionists and you know the the head experts on nutrition for sport in Australia. She's based at the AIS. Jonah Oliver, probably not a familiar name to to too many people, but Jonah is a performance psychologist and he's absolutely brilliant. I've heard this guy talk, and he really knows his stuff. So it's quite exciting to have Jonah. Now from AA, we've also got Craig Hilliard, Brett, you know, who's the head coach, Brett Valance, who's the walks coach, the national junior event coordinator, and Julian Perriard, who's the associate professor at the University of Canberra Research Institute for Sport and Exercise. Now, I think his main bent might be heat acclimatisation and those things, but don't quote me on that. But <laughs> that's definitely something that AA are looking for uh, through to when we go to Doha and then on to Tokyo. So Nick Badeau and Phil O'Sorn is also going to be there as uh, coaches and also uh, Phil O being the physiologist at the AIS. So it's a great lineup. Yeah, I think whatever your event might be in the distance space, there, there's there's definitely someone you could you could glean some pretty fascinating information from. And as we've noted, uh, heat acclimatisation is going to be one of the most popular topics of the next two years. And the IAAF have actually just had their endurance summit in Denmark. And if you jump on the IAAF website, there's a very cool. Uh, set of slides you can download and, and a video you can watch of the presentation but that was in prep for both world cross country in denmark um doha world champs and tokyo where the marathons and the, the longer events are expected to be pretty severely affected by the heat now one of the best things about this sean ten dollars entry if you're an accredited <laughs> athletics australia coach so bargain. Not, that is absolute bargain it also gets you into the zatapec so mm. it's it's a really good um package here if you're not an accredited coach it's 110 dollars so get those accreditations in. Yep. As I, as I recall, your accreditation is about 80 bucks. So you can still save more by just getting accredited. Yeah, so we look forward to that. So that's uh, the 13th and 14th of December at Albert Park. More information and to register, just go to the Athletics Australia website. Our multi-eventers have been busy, especially on the 10th and 11th of November out at uh, Box Hill. The Maltus Combined Event Championships. What can you tell us about Maltus, Sean? I believe that's the brainchild of Steve Kane, a, a former Australian representative in the, the decath and now a, a national junior coach in the multi-event space. Uh, congratulations to Steve. I believe as of yesterday he's a new dad, but uh, whilst he's been very busy on all fronts of his life there, he's, he's also had time to set up his own uh, sort of Grand Prix of, of multi-events. 
Yeah, which is, yet again, a really good initiative and, and good to see, once again, the Box Hill Athletic Club supporting these sort of things. Now, a few state records uh, for the Victorians. Very exciting. Paul Hasbroke in the under-18s. He got 6912 as, as his score. Second in that one, Sebastian Reinecke in 6100. So, Paul Hasbroke, obviously, younger brother. Yeah, young brother of the uh, current world under twenty silver medalist Gary, who's uh, now studying overseas. But yeah, he's definitely he's got the lineage there for the for the multi events, and obviously uh, grasping onto a number of events pretty quickly there at his age. Tamsin Murdoch also got a state record in the under sixteens four nine one two. So second there, Rihanna Clemo. So Tamsin, obviously another one to watch. She's a South Australian actually. Yeah, that's pretty cool to see someone making a trip over as a junior. So. I think uh, the competition opportunities for the multi-eventers can be a little far and wide at times, so awesome to see them taking advantage of, uh, of an event. Yeah, and Noah Oliver also got the state record there. Uh, what was the score there? It looks like it's a 4-6-9-0, so small font on that one. But <laughs> Noah Oliver, that's in the under-16, so yet again, good performance there. Now, in the Opens, we had um, Queensland, uh, sorry, from the ACT, uh, Lachlan Calvin. He did 7-0-1, sorry, score of 7-0-0-3, which is just shy of his PB of 7-0-1-0. So, good performance there from Calvin. Yeah, I, I don't know how... Uh how close you'd know you were going into those events, yeah. but tough. That's fifteen hundred. Tough, 1500 tough <laughs> to miss the PB by uh, by seven points there, yeah. but yeah, obviously in in good early season form. Yeah, currently fifth best in Australia at the moment, Calvert. So he's he's one that that's thereabouts. And uh, David Brock, he was second in six nine seven five. So actually not too far behind there. Mm. Uh, so Brock uh, just seems to be coming back into form now. Yeah, I'm, I know he's been juggling, um, I think, full-time work as a physio now with, with training. So when you've got that many events to grasp, uh, it's, he's obviously got a jam-packed schedule. Yeah, Jared Padgett um, from Melbourne Uni, 6845, getting in third position there. Now, interestingly, on that day at the Maltus, they had a victorious longest throw and Michael Burian from Sandringham threw a baseball 86 metres. <laughs> What's your thoughts on that? Oh, I think... Um I don't know if he's got a history in uh, in baseball or, or javelin, but I, I know even with our, our uh, Vortex challenge down at some of our all-schools meets, kids that play baseball or softball um, often have got a bit of a knack for throwing things a very long way. That's that's a fun little event. So 86 metres for Burren. Do you actually know what the world record for throwing a baseball is? <laughs> no, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. Well, it's 135.89 <laughs> metres. Now, that's a long way, isn't it? Yeah, I think you've been strife with an ath track. I think the throwing area is only just uh, oh, just on 100 metres. We are getting dangerous uh, grounds there. Now, yeah. Glenn Gorbis, uh, he's a Canadian. He was playing minor leagues, and it was actually done in 1957. So 135 <laughs> metres in 1957. He played for the Omaha Cardinals. Of course he did. Uh, this, this could be an event we have to revive if, if the world record's been around since the 50s well why not you know and that was off a six-step run-up um just you know talking that one through who would you fancy there a javelin thrower or a shot putter um yeah i definitely think with the the over over the shoulder motion i i think the shot putters would be useful but yeah geez if i think if you got a really top end javelin thrower onto that um i think i've seen Catherine brooks mucking around with a, a vortex or a tennis ball down at um down at lakeside and yeah they can throw those things a pretty outrageously long way yeah i think we should get onto this one this could this, be this an could event. be a new activation yeah, event. i, I want to see watch uh, this space i want to see damo the Karaya colossus uh <laughs> tossing out the, get, the baseball get us, get us a new world record we yeah. could be on here uh, yeah let's that's our project yeah <laughs> certainly doesn't feel like it, but Lakeside Stadium's now been the home of athletics in Victoria for seven years. And what that means? The track is due for resurface. 
Scheduled dates are November through to December 2019. So Athletics Victoria is now looking for feedback on what our stakeholders might like through the redevelopment of the track surface and also potentially some of the reconfiguration of the field layout. Ross Cunningham, our operations manager, will be in charge of this project. So this is your opportunity to get in touch with Ross. If you have any suggestions or any ideas about what we can do, particularly in regard to track surface, which is scheduled to be a polytan smart track, or some of the reconfiguration that might be necessary out in the field events. If you'd like to have any say in this process, certainly get in touch with Ross by emailing ross at asfic.org.au or by giving me a call, 8646 We'd like feedback submitted by Friday the 21st of December, and then we'll get into the process of feeding that all back to the developers so that the athletics fraternity can certainly have their say on the redevelopment of the Lakeside Stadium track. So it's been a busy few weeks, and now we head into another busy few weeks. There's no doubt about it at the moment, Sean. Yeah, heading into Christmas is quite a hectic period for, for all disciplines, I think, in athletics and, and running. Whitehorse Twilight meets on this Thursday night. It's looking good. Yeah, I think um, Steve Neen's got things down to E-heats there. So, um, you know, build it and they will come. And, and Steve's been pretty keen about making Box Hill a, uh, a hub for... All things uh, midway gaths, and he's he's hit the nail on the head there. Yeah, I think there could be touching on 200 entries in the 400s and the 1500s. There's also the long and the shot put, and the fields there are really good as well. So I've, I've had a sneak peek at them. I think they're actually down to F heats in some of the events. But one of the things I really like, there's nearly as many women's heats as there are men. So that issue that we, we struggled with with Milers Club for so, so long that we were something like, um, oh, it, was, it was even under 30% female participation. That's now risen and we're getting now towards 40 that's now coming through to meets like this. So the girls in, in right across the board in Athletics Victoria, the participation stats are 60%, uh, sorry, membership stats are 60% male, 40% female. We're now seeing that come right through to competition, which is great. Yeah, I think in the distance world, uh, there's, there's a pretty even even spread usually at these sorts of meets where you can get a seated heat and um, it'll be awesome to see what results come out of Thursday night. Yeah, look, it should be a great atmosphere too. As we know, Box Hill really wraps that up beautifully. So good numbers, lots of racing. Fours start off, then we go into the 1500s. You can actually enter in the day. I'm not actually happy about that because it could throw some of the seating out, <laughs> but they will allow entries on the day. So get out there Thursday the 29th. It starts at 6.30, I believe, or is it, I think it's 6.30. It could be 7. Not entirely sure. Maybe uh, check your broadcast for that one, yeah. but um, double check on the on the website. Now you'll be heading off to Cairns fairly soon, Sean, for the uh, the all schools. Yeah, it's our uh, it's our team trip of, of the year, and we've we've got a team of uh, just over 170 headed up. So uh, basically, filled all the spots uh, we had available in terms of betting. So it should be a, a jam packed trip, and yeah, you know, it, it's definitely a, a sort of a building spot for those kids that we might not have heard a lot about or, or our more regular competitors to get their season off to a good start. But Cairns, hot, humid. I think this is going to be a, a sprinter's delight, this event. Yeah, great. But we'll have down the track up there and recording some good interviews, I hope. And in the next edition, we'll have some really good stuff coming out of that that meet in particular. Uh, the Carmen's Women's Run is one I want to throw to as well. It's been around for a long time. It used to be the Suzanne's, and it's had a history that goes back a long, long, long time. It's the only real women's-only event in, in Australia. It's now 5K, 10K, and they have introduced a half marathon. So that's on the 2nd of December down at the St Kilda Foreshore. 
offshore, based at Katani Gardens. Now, often we do see some of our best AV girls getting out there. The prizes are actually quite good, um, especially yeah. if you get in the winner's uh, circle. You can <laughs> take home Carmen's are the new sponsor, so you can imagine there's some great Carmen's products, the uh, the music bars and muesli's and all right, that. popular. And, and their prize packs that they walk away with are usually bigger than the girls. So Carmen's <laughs> Women's Run is on the 2nd of December, so we encourage all women to take part. There's a huge uh, linkage here with breast cancer awareness and fundraising. It's a massively good event. It's women's only. The boys are still allowed to enter, but obviously there's no focus on the boys, uh, but it is truly a great women's event to run. Sounds like a great event to support. Yeah, exactly right. On the same day too, over at Faulkner Park, so not too far away, the Australian Walks Championships. So yeah, some, some big names. Big names. We'll have the talents there and obviously our run walker already in Cowley will be around. <laughs> but, uh, multi-talented. Yeah, multi-talented. So once again, down the track will be there. So we'll be uh, hoping to record some good interviews and give some good coverage there to the Australian Walks Championships. So it's the 50k, uh, probably also shorter distance 30k on the cards as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure how they split that with juniors and such, but you know, that'll be one we'll keep an eye on and, and try and keep all our walking fans uh, in the loop. Yeah, and we've had actually had some really good feedback from the walkers from the last edition, and, and thanks to Terry Swan for giving us a bit of a heads up, and, and yet again, this is what we need. We need people to be feeding us info, and we'll get onto it, and we'll certainly give it support and coverage. Now, the Zatapec lower grades, for those who don't make the, the big big show on the, the 13th, there are the lower grade events at Box Hill on the 11th of December. So they're going to be three races. One's a 30 to 40 minute race, and then I think there's a 40 to 50, and then a 50 minute plus type race. So three separate races. I know the first race is filling up really quick. They do have quotas on how many can enter, but certainly in the, the, uh, the, the third heat, there's still plenty of room in that one. Sean, Nike have got a revolutionary product, as you <laughs> you, know, you well know. And it, it's one that's not without controversy, I suppose. And this is the new shoe technology they're using. Yeah, it, it's interesting, Tim, that you know, it's become such a prominent um, item in marathons and, and half marathons around the world. I think, um, obviously, on the men's side, and I think the women's half marathon world record was probably set in the same shoe as well, but the, the men's half marathon and the men's full distance, both set in the uh, Vaporfly or, or versions of the Vaporfly 4%. Um, a really fascinating article came out through the week um, by a guy, Alex Hutchinson, who's, who's written a book called Endure and is the, the author of a column called Sweat Science through the week. He's a US-based guy and has spent a bit of time on the New York Times bestsellers list. But um, he noted that there's some peer-reviewed research that's coming out that's looked into the differences in the 4% as to whether it's the foam or the carbon fibre plate that sits in the shoe or both. Uh, and the fascinating thing was in his interviews with a lot of the Nike product, um, I guess sort of line people that worked specifically in the development of the shoe, they weren't entirely sure. There were there were different research departments that were more sure on various elements of the shoe contributing. But, of course, it was a shoe that started off looking to be particularly minimalist. But the feedback from a ton of their top marathoners was that, if anything, the, the roads hurt. They're a, they're a hard surface and they were looking for something that would be more comfortable over the longer bit. Um, Adidas did used to have a product they trialled with Hayley Gabriselesi back in the day with a carbon fibre insert. But it wasn't something he was allegedly much of a fan of. So it sort of faded off. So, you know, what Adidas missed out on Nike have now revolutionised and uh, there's a lot of research coming out of the University of Colorado at, at Boulder um, and the debate was that there was a comparison trial between the Matumbo, the, the track spike that's often used for 10,000 metre events and the 4% and um, across a range of running abilities um, people recorded greater um, running economy with the 4% shoe um, and the debate was that that's due to a lot to do with the Zoom X foam um, and that the foam is uh, far more responsive than a lot of other products on the market but 
but when combined with the the carbon fiber shank or the or the plate that runs throughout the shoe um you you have what is very close and and dangerously this is where the IAAF seem to be cautious to step on it, it it does act a bit like a spring yeah and that's where the controversy comes in is is this a performance enhancer yeah and and the argument is that in the footwear world, anything that's marketed to to groups competing at that top level at the World Champs of the Olympics, there, there should be an availability. So there, every competitor should be able to compete in the same shoe. And as we've seen time and time again, that the marketing strategy from Nike is to severely limit the releases of this shoe. And sure, you know, you look at your your Elliot Kipchoge's and your Galen Rupps and your top of the tops. Yeah, they can get as many varieties and as many prototypes of that shoe as they want. But the argument is, is that as fair to people who are bound by sponsorship with Adidas or or Mizuno or New Balance? And we even saw at the European Championships examples of New Balance uppers stitched onto Vaporfly bases. Yeah, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we're we're seeing sponsored athletes now who are in some ways getting rid of their sponsorships just in order to get into that shoe. So this is a bit of a game changer. Yeah, and I think the argument there would be is that through a number of studies that have come out, there's there's a sort of happy settlement on between two to four percent depending on your running style that, that there can be an advantage there and if you're you know one of the top male or female marathoners in the world and there's a, a spare two percent floating around across the course of a you know a two to two and a half hour event that is absolutely enormous so yeah. yeah, and even in Australia, we're seeing some pretty good t- times now being run. Yeah, we're see- we saw a lot of course records run this year. Yeah, um, and all of those course records, I dare say, were running four percent. Yeah, and and there is a an amusing graph that's sort of collated on Twitter by a, a particular running aficionado, where the the top sort of five finishes of each major marathon were listed, and and I think yeah, maybe barring Mary Kaitani, who's sponsored by Adidas, every single winner of a major marathon has worn the four percent shoe. So, you know, causation doesn't or correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation but that might might just be the nike sponsorship but a lot of athletes do seem very keen to investigate you know the, the implementation of carbon fiber or, a, or a, far de- a far denser foam into their shoe so what are the other brands doing um brooks have got a prototype that um des linden wore at um at boston and that's often notable if, if you're a viewer at home it's usually an all blacked out shoe that you can't really tell much about but thankfully we've got these very high resolution photographers at marathons that get very close up shots of shoes and Sorconi, even with jared ward uh in new york um he wore a different shoe to the one he put up in his in his pre-race instagram so a bit of bit of sneakiness there but had a shoe that seemed to have a much denser sort of midsole and rear foot so i think you know um a couple of competitors at new york likened it to a to a shoe arms race and you know companies out there want to be able to provide those top athletes with you know the, the same concept so do you believe the IAAF will ta- take action like happened in swimming with yeah. the, the swimsuits or are they going to sit back and, and hope that the, the rest of the technology catches up to what Nike are doing oh, I, th- I think you know it would be very difficult I know the major sponsor of USATF is Nike and that's a that's a hundred hundreds of millions of dollars being pumped in there so I think Nike might have a, a fairly strongly vested interest in the sport and I, I don't know as to what levels of the IAAF that might have sway, but the tough thing would be if the IAAF were to make a ruling on the shoe, it would, wouldn't affect one or two competitors, it would affect enormous fields of athletes and with Nike having the presence they have in the in the footwear industry, I'm, I'm not sure how the IAAF would tackle that. Yeah. 
be interesting to see how it goes over the next couple of years, though, won't it? You know, that, that shoe itself probably is still in development and they'll probably refine it as it goes. And then what do the other brands do to catch up? Yeah, m- memorably, even when the, the Zoom Victory first came out around sort of the, the first prototype we saw was the 2007 World Championships. It was the lightest spike ever at the time. I think it was just under 100 grams. And then, you know, Brooks and companies like that came forward with lighter shoes. So I think Nike have shown it's not necessarily an, an extreme variable that you focus on. It might not be how light the shoe is or how much response you get from one element of the shoe but it's it's often the combination of, of a variety of elements but you know adidas brooks um all seem to be furiously trying to catch up so i think it'll be a, a very hot topic in in the world marathon major scene yeah it certainly will and they're not cheap either no and, and that's the toughest thing yeah the there are a couple of versions within versions of the shoe you can get and the sort of every man's version is still sort of retails for around 260 bucks and if you move up to the version um that you know you see some of the pros wearing that's going to be closer to the 400 mark and even still, there were promotional releases of uh, about 150 pairs of the the 3D printed upper that Kipchoge wore in London, and they were they were going for close to 600 pounds. Yeah. So it's it's you know, it's almost crossing into sort of the the much hyped fashion and footwear market where mm. you can see these shoes going for thousands of dollars. Yeah, it certainly is fascinating. We'll we'll um, obviously just see how that pans out over the next few years. A little bit of controversy over the weekend too with uh, the Ultra World. The, oh. There was an event up in the Alpine Challenge, and I've never seen Aura is the uh, the Australian Ultra Runners Association. I've, I've never seen them put out statements like this. So, wow. as we know in Victoria, that weather conditions Friday, Saturday, Sunday of last week weren't you know they were variable. Snowy. Uh, <laughs> there was snow, and uh, there was a hundred miler up there. For those who don't know how far a hundred mile is, that's one hundred and sixty k. So it's a big event, and. Mm. Uh, Aura weren't necessarily involved in that event, but they were putting out releases about the suitability of whether the event should go ahead or not, which was, as I said, a probably a little bit unusual for the, the national body in charge of ultras to be doing that, and I'm not sure what the politics was behind it. The event did go ahead. They, they modified the course. They were running in a lot of snow, and as far as I know, there were no incidents. But it does highlight... Um, in many ways, the safety risks that the ultra runners are putting themselves through. Yeah, I, I think um, not being um, personally familiar with the ultra events myself, it's a little bit far for me just yet, but uh, yeah, I can't imagine the, the event logistics around you know, whether you were using a particularly large loop or even, a, even an out-and-back course or a point-to-point course in, in just you know, patrolling from a safety aspect, you know, 100 and 160 kilometres worth of course. Yeah, well, they ended up doing a 40k loop, I believe, which is still extensive. When you're in the Alpine region, and it was unmarked trails from what I believe yeah, everyone had to navigate themselves. So it's, um, you know, certainly, you know, and, and, you know, being an experienced distance coach, what I am seeing is that we have are getting inexperienced runners going to the ultras far, far too quickly. And to then be exposed to circumstances and conditions like that, I, I think you are starting to get on the real hazardous sort of side of the sport unfortunately yeah i think distance runners from the sort of 5k 10k world are are very quick to look at ultras and look at what the average pace might be for say 100 kilometers or 100 miles and think oh that's that's glacial i could do that but you know you forget you're out there for you know easily more than you know up to 10 15 20 hours of attempted exercise which is insane when you think of the the sleep and nutrition demands and if you're stumbling into that with you know a bottle of water and a backpack and thinking you're going to be fine i think (laughs) you could have a pretty rude shock yeah now the event organizers and i'm not criticizing any 
event organizer here, but they are really um, quite hard on the, the mandatory gear that people have to take. But quite often the runners think, oh, no, no, I don't need that, and they'll start to shed stuff off. But but I think this is a case in point where, where the runners have to be conscious that that mandi- mandatory gear is there in the case of emergency. Um, and a lot of these areas that they're running, uh, there's no reception. Uh, mm. You need to be self-sufficient. And really, if you haven't got your space blankets or your, yeah, your waterproofs and yeah, your change of socks, you're a long way from help. <laughs> you're a long way from help. And even snake bite as well, which can yeah. happen. It wasn't going to happen in snow, but um, <laughs> it certainly can happen. So, look, interesting there that uh, what's happening now. You know, and I'll just throw to the fact that Australia has a very strong ultra community, though. And it's one area that I believe, you know, a little bugbear of mine, if, if Australia were to put some high-performance sort of funding and a little bit of effort into ultras, we would be a very good nation. It's just that really they have to be self-funded here. And, and, and is the framework coming from the international body great? I don't think so. I think it's similar to what's happening. We're seeing the IAAF move from these yearly championships to, to bi-yearly championships. So, and that's been great. So you've got the World Cross one year, the World Half the next year, and then rotate back through. With the Ultras, they're still trying to do World Championships every bloody year. And, um, and it, it's just, it spreads the, the talent pool too thin. And it's yeah. hard, especially in Australia, because most of these championships are in Europe. Europe and yeah, I, places I that. think that's interesting in seeing those those Sky Trail sort of championships and these, mm. you know, the the Mont Blanc uh, events. There, there is a lot of money on the line, so I think you know, we we could see some. You know, if you're maybe a marathoner or someone who's a little bit off making a, a national team and that might not seem feasible. You know, do, do you see people investigating these distances? Well, they certainly do. And, yeah, there's a few strings to this bow as well because these ultra runners can also be good mountain runners. So the mountain running champs does present, you know, if you're a good cross-country runner, why couldn't you contemplate doing the, the world mountains every second year, which is an up-down rather than an all-up? Mm. Uh, next year they're in Argentina, you know, in Patagonia. It's going to be a fantastic destination for the world mountain up-down year. Hard to get to, but you know, yeah. and again, self-funded. But it is an opportunity. If you're not making those Australian teams in um, in World Cross, then yeah. this is the next bet for you. And the same with ultras. The only problem with the ultras too, though, is there's competing bodies who are you know you've got your sky runners and you've got the iau who are the ultra runners but i do believe that at the moment there's a lot of talk going on between these to try and get a consolidated championship calendar so what's that space but i think that could be a really positive outcome of this that we might see rationalization because uh sky run even though it's not a world championship as such it's got no body like the iwf mm. behind it that's where the money is that's where the yeah. tv is and that's where you're seeing some of our best like ben duffus yeah. he will not go to world mountains because he's going to do the sky running mm. why wouldn't he too because he's got a me- yeah, much the, better chance the of, there. yeah the money is there and money speaks as we know because these are predominantly amateur athletes so mm. lots of interesting stuff happening there Hmm. So that's it for episode two down the track, Sean. It's, uh, yet again, lots of information going out there. Yeah, plenty for uh, everyone to absorb in there. I think uh, we're, we're trying to hit that nail on the head every week of uh, giving someone a little bit, little bit of everything from around our world. Yeah, correct. Uh, what's coming up in the next week or two for you? Um, well, yeah, I'll, I'll be off to Cairns next week, so I'll, um, I'll be on Kid Management 101 and, and trying to make sure that all the kids have a, a rip of time up there and then getting back for that next week and getting excited for Zatapak. Well, I'd rather be me, me than you because I'm going to the <laughs> Cathedral's Challenge on that weekend, which is up in the Cathedral Ranges. It's a great... Uh, it's only in the second year, I think, the Cathedral's Challenge. There's a 21 and a 10K trail race through the Cathedral Ranges. Awesome. Uh, and in the 10K itself, I know that there are elements where I have to climb up some of the... Uh, 
rock faces <laughs> on rope. So <laughs> it, it ain't one of your traditional trail races. There's some quite challenging uh, areas of it and I'm looking forward to it immensely. So that's it for this episode. Thanks again, Sean. Uh, hopefully everyone enjoyed it. Yet again, let us know your feedback and uh, let's just try and pump out some great content, content for the Athletics Victoria crowd. Bye.